Hello, and welcome to HoundCast, sponsored by Moravian's Office of Alumni and Family Engagement. My name is Dylan Starr, the Assistant Director of Engagement Events, and your host for today's show. This season, we'll interview various alumni to hear about their life, career, and how Moravian shaped them. On this episode of HoundCast, we'll talk to Dr. Janine Jaeger, class of 1972, who is an epidemiologist. We'll discuss how simply listening can be the most effective way for change, how your professional network can arise in the most unexpected places, and how perspective is everything. Enjoy this episode of HoundCast. Just to sit with me and, you know, tell me about your story. Uh, so first, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up, uh, what interests you as a kid, and really what brought you to Moravian? I, I grew up in a very small town in uh, New Jersey, Pompton Plains. It's a little, little town, kind of interesting retrospectively looking at my childhood there because the, the little town, you could walk everywhere in the town from one end to the other. It's like everything was walking distance and all the houses were basically, I mean, I was the first one in my family, you know, to go to college. Uh, and my parents, um, you know, they, college is college, you know? So for them, there was no question about, you know, they just said, wherever you wanna go, honey. Mm -hmm. um, and so I chose a place that was not, too near home and not too far away from home. It's like when you came to Moravian, you know, did you know you wanted to be on that track or did you kind of need some soul searching to figure out where you were going? Well, I didn't even know the meaning of the word epidemiology when I graduated from Moravian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the thing is there were, there were some aspects of epidemiology that were all, I always, was interested in doing research. Mm -hmm. That was always where my mind went from like seventh grade. I think, you know, we did a research project in seventh grade and, and that was like, yeah, you know, this is me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I could hardly stop myself, you know, from going way overboard with this little uh, research project. You created the Familial Mediterranean Fever Foundation can you tell us how it came about and why it's so important to you? It came about because I was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder um, called familial Mediterranean fever. Now, 99% of doctors will never have heard of this disease. <clears throat> yeah, so just getting a diagnosis was miraculous in itself. Yeah. And I have to give credit to my own physician, who was a colleague of mine in the Department of Internal Medicine at UVA. <clears throat> He had never had another patient with familial Mediterranean fever, um, and it took four years to find it, but he was finally the one who came up with uh, that diagnosis, which was uh, correct, mm -hmm. and it was very easy to um, determine that it was correct because there's a gold standard treatment that's very specific to this disease, and you take the medication, and if it treats the disease, you've got it, um, and that's, yeah, the, the drug is uh, colchicine, and that's a drug that is used primarily in gout patients. Mm -hmm. And they were things that the experts did not know. So it yeah. was an issue of um, anecdotal evidence. And that means, you know, just listening to patients. Mm -hmm. That's what anecdotal evidence means. That as an epidemiologist, you know, here's a group of people and they're generating information. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And for me, that it was automatic. You know, mm-hmm. different brands of the same drug can mm-hmm. have a different effect on, on people. So everyone was taking colchicine like me, but some people had a good reaction to it. Some people had a bad reaction. And then they said to each other, oh, but I switched to this brand and that one worked. And then another person would say, but I took that brand and it didn't work for me. So this was just a description of a known phenomenon that's Mm -hmm. variable brand response Mm -hmm. um, to to the same drug. And it was not acknowledged by the medical community. So I just, you know, I did a survey and that was, you know, see a group of people do a survey, you know, they're there data. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so I just asked people, how many brands of Colchicine have you taken? Mm -hmm. And how have you responded to each brand? Mm -hmm. Just, you know, good, medium, bad, you know, three (laughs) categories. And, you know, we had 40 people um, take our survey with a total of 100 brand trials. And uh, we had a beautiful pattern that was just very clear Mm -hmm. that every brand had 85% positive response rate and Mm -hmm. 15% adverse response rate. Mm -hmm. And if they switched brands, they would have another chance at the 85% positive response. So, yeah. So we found that if patients had access to three different brands, Mm -hmm. they could get a good response, you know, be guaranteed a good response. All they had to do was switch brands. Yeah. 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 Trial by error. Right. That's right. Yeah. And that was, uh, that really changed the outcome of uh, colchicine or it was believed that there was a 15% adverse response rate. Yeah. Um, whereas if they switch brands, you could get up to 97%. Um, That's huge. And I, I mean, it's one thing to research something. It's one thing to live it and to combine both. I mean, you, you're a wealth of knowledge. This also tied into um, FDA regulation because the FDA banned five brands of colchicine mm-hmm. and approved one new brand. And the new brand, no one had tried. Mm-hmm. People had sorted themselves out into the brands that they responded well to. Mm-hmm. And when they took away the five brands and provided one, then you had people who were having adverse response to it and nowhere to go to, you know, so it actually turned into quite a crisis yeah. uh, for the FMF community. I'd had a lot of experience interaction with the FDA mm-hmm. uh, and this was an FDA issue of regulation and, you know, h- how do you report adverse response mm-hmm. and get the FDA to act on, you know, whatever I would had experience with the FDA because of my work in um, designing new medical devices, mm-hmm. all of that's regulated, you know, through the FDA. And I have colleagues out there, a network. It was the beginning of the Obama administration. And one of my sort of activist colleagues uh, who had a lot to do with, and, you know, drug prescription, mm-hmm. he took a job in the um, Obama administration in the commissioner's office. <laughs> so oh one day he contacted me, you know, hey, you know, I'm now, you know, in the commissioner's office at the FDA. Is there anything I can do for you? <laughs> That's, that's an email you want. <laughs> so, you know, there were just so many parts of my background that mm-hmm. could be useful to this patient population mm-hmm. that I decided to start a foundation. And the, the mission of the foundation is using patients' anecdotal evidence 
to guide research. Mm -hmm. Really what we're doing, you know, the research, which is very extensive. I mean, we have like a higher researcher to patient ratio and FMF. It's just incredibly, you know, um, unusual to have mm -hmm. a huge body of researchers, but they're all geneticists. They're all focusing on genetics. Mm -hmm. And if you're working with anecdotal evidence, you're working with like everything but genetics, mm -hmm. everything else besides genetics. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, you know, as an epidemiologist, this was fantastic because, you know, in the scientific method, you know, you have this pyramid, yes. the scientific method, the foundation at the bottom is anecdotal evidence. It's part of the scientific method, but it is not useful for proving cause and effect relationship. It's useful for hypothesis formation. That's its real place. So anecdotal evidence is being, you know, discarded by the medical community. Anecdotal evidence is a synonym for trash. And that's what I discovered. You know, I came into this field mm -hmm. as a researcher with a very long research career mm -hmm. and connecting with researchers in the field of FMF. And I brought them, I said, you know, we've got some really interesting uh, observations here yeah. from patients. And as soon as I said, you know, from patients, they just closed their minds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that, that we noted of significance was patients, a variety of patients, different patients, different places were saying that they had um, a beneficial effect from a gluten-free diet. Yeah, and, and that is very, 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 very far away from genetic pathology. Mm -hmm. It's like unrelated to genetic pathology. Mm -hmm. And the reaction that I got from these researchers was, it wasn't just dismissive, it was outright hostile, like rejecting the data with, with scorn. Oof. Like, you know, how could you be so stupid? <laughs> yeah real real scorn yeah um and um based on reports that i got back from other patients and i started doing research well what does gluten do how does that relate to the symptoms of fmf is there a connection there and it turned out gluten was the key piece of evidence you know leading us to mm -hmm. a predominant role of factors in the gut mm -hmm. now and that is FMF um, is affected by these factors in the gut. So gluten, absolutely. A gluten-free diet, definitely. In fact, patients, many patients have gone into complete remission um, after a gluten-free diet. Yeah. Uh, and this is a disease that is said to be incurable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm cured, you know, hello, yeah. I'm cured. Um, <clears throat> And this anecdotal evidence, I went on a gluten-free diet and now I'm in remission to the specialists in the field. The response was, that's ridiculous. You, you would know? think that they would be more open-minded and, and less closed off. Well, you know, when you look at the reason for it is because the whole field of research uh, in FMF started with the genetic finding that people with this disease had certain mutations in a specific gene. Mm -hmm. So that set the research off um, towards genetics. So mm -hmm. the more we know about genetics, the more we will be able to 
you know, treat this disease. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it turns out that all inflammation, you know, mm -hmm. FMF or not, you know, all, all d disease that is primarily uh, inflammation, and that would include autoimmune diseases, mm -hmm. um, they are all based on the, the, the fundamental foundation of these um, in, infl this inflammation pathology. Mm -hmm. So simply put, because it actually conceptually is very simple, mm -hmm. um, that all inflammation requires a trigger. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the definition yeah. of inflammation, that it is a response to a trigger. Okay. Mm -hmm. Gluten was a piece of evidence mm -hmm. that led to the identification of the trigger mechanism. You know, if all inflammation requires a trigger, mm -hmm. then the trigger has a very, you know, uni very uh, unique role. Mm -hmm. um, if you can block triggers, you'll block the disease. Yeah. So th there is a trigger mechanism in the gut. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> it turns out that, yes, you can actually turn it off. And so gluten is not the only thing that affects um, this trigger mechanism. It's just one thing. And it led us to the identification. Yeah. The, the, the larger, and, and this is useful for like everybody to know, okay. <laughs> the trigger mechanism of inflammation is intestinal permeability. And yeah. And people with FMF, their the intestinal permeability changes, you know, <laughs> under different circumstances over the lifetime, whatever. So usually when a person begins symptoms of FMF, it, it can happen at any point in life. Mm -hmm. There's been some preceding event, some health event, like a massive infectious disease in which they were prescribed lots of antibiotics, which screw up your intestines. Mm -hmm. that, that will kind of destroy the trigger mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, reducing intestinal permeability mm -hmm. will reduce, like, it's, it's like a sliding scale. The more you reduce it, the fewer um, in inflammatory symptoms you have. And that can go all the way down to like zero mm -hmm. and that's remission. So treating the disease, FMF, mm -hmm. which is only inflammation, treating the intestinal permeability will cut off the disease. So if you block the triggers, then you're blocking inflammation. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. And, and all of that came from anecdotal evidence from patients, trial and error, patients doing trial and error. And we patched, we, we um, put it together like a, like a puzzle, mm -hmm. you know, where the pieces go together and defined that trigger mechanism. And we had to connect with researchers outside of the field of genetics because the people with genetics don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Actually, you know, the trigger mechanism obviates everything else. Mm -hmm. You just shut down the trigger mechanism. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit. I, I want to talk about, you know, your time at Moravian. Is there something particular that you loved here? Obviously Moravian has developed in the area of uh, healthcare, the healthcare oh, yes. uh, professions, which is very important. That was not part of my experience at, at Moravian. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just way before that was, you know, highly developed. I think what was most important to me was um, I did a senior research, senior research project, mm -hmm. independent research. And, you know, my mind was always, you know, going there. 
I was a psychology major mm -hmm. and I oriented myself towards research, like physiological mm -hmm. side of research. And I was doing like rat experiments and implanting electrodes into, into rat brains. There's like a motivational center in the brain. Mm -hmm. And I had a little electrode going there. And what did they do if you simulated their motivational center? Oh, wow. um, <clears throat> that was very novel, completely novel. There was no professor whose research I was tapping into. Mm -hmm. So that was important for me to be able to really fully indulge mm -hmm. in my research orientation. Mm -hmm. So that was very important. Um, but I spent my um, junior academic year in Vienna. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Have, have you been back since? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. But the thing is that after, after I graduated from Moravian, one of my Moravian um, friends, very close friend, and I uh, went the year after we graduated, mm -hmm. we moved to Paris for a year together. Oh. And um, we were like, you know, what do we want to do next in life? Well, let's go someplace interesting while we're deciding <laughs> kind of thing. So that um, changed my orientation to Vienna because I met my husband in Paris oh. and I married a Frenchman. Uh, <laughs> so our time in Europe is way more spent in France than Vienna. But yeah. the Vienna, I have very dear lifetime friends there. I have been back and we visited, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a magical, a magical year. It is a very beautiful place. And I spent it with beautiful people. Recently, I came to Moravian and I gave some, uh, had some meetings with students in different areas. And I went to the psychology department where I had been a student and they were asking me questions. <laughs> and they asked me this question that completely took me by surprise that I hadn't thought of. And they said, how do you think we compare to how the students were when you were here? Oh. Yeah. And, but it was a very way more profound question than they even knew they were asking because exactly when I started at Moravian, which was 1968, was when the country, the entire country was in just really deep turmoil. Mm -hmm. And there were, there were demonstrations all around the country. And this focused partly on Vietnam, mm -hmm. but it became more of a, you know, anti-establishment cultural, your whole social platform was like collapsing. Mm -hmm. our, our society really uh, changed at that time. And especially for college students. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the demonstrations were at colleges everywhere. Everybody was demonstrating, classes were shut down. And it, it wasn't just for one event, it was like a, a social. So, so my experience at Moravian was very much affected mm -hmm. by those social, you know, that was like the hippie era, which you can sort of maybe trivialize, but the hippie era was a rejection, was a social mm -hmm. rejection of our parents' um, society. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually, you know, no matter where you went to college, it had an effect on it. It, it was, it was not a good thing, mm -hmm. uh, generally because people felt very lost. It, mm -hmm. it was like, after you graduated from college that you had to find yourself. And that was like, find yourself became a thing, mm -hmm. you know, in our generation. So people 
they lost their bearings and then they had to go find themselves. So that's the, you know, the student culture yeah. of when I was at Moravian. Mm -hmm. um, and this was, you know, it wasn't specific to Moravian, but it was part, it was a significant part of um, my experience. And the fact that my friend and I Mm -hmm. um spent this year in paris it was part of that finding yourself you know i've yeah. got to figure this out before i make any decisions if you could give our young alumni any advice what would that be well you know i don't claim that i'm the person you know who should be giving advice to other, <laughs> other people um <clears throat> i think you know just looking at some of the some of the social trends in our society where you know what makes a person valuable is really your differences from other people i mean your perspective and your observations are you know very valuable because you see things a little mm -hmm. you know your different perspective actually gives you value mm -hmm. in finding new solutions to things so in a sense that's what i did with fmf Mm -hmm. you know, I went where science wasn't listening mm -hmm. and I listened to the people and that had tremendous value because it was a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I would say that in your professional you know, trajectory, understand that you have great value in that context and what makes you feel maybe as an outsider may be the most valuable thing that you have be assertive in pursuing that perspective that is unique to you rather mm -hmm. than saying, well, I'm an outsider. No, if it has value, then you must bring it forward. You must. And, and that could be the greatest contribution that, that you could have. I, I love that advice. I've never really thought about it that way, that the outside perspective can be sometimes even more helpful than the inside. Janine, from myself and all of the listeners, we appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, and be on the lookout for a new episode of Houndcast coming soon.